0: This is the Bigger Pockets podcast show, 449.
1: To maintain all of these ongoing asynchronous back and forth conversations that are digital, you have to constantly monitor these inboxes. You have to constantly monitor these chat channels. And this constant monitoring is killing us. Our brain cannot network switch that much. Every time we glance at that inbox, it's full of all these messages from people we care about, most of which we cannot resolve right there in the moment. It's a cognitive catastrophe.
2: You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com. Your home for real estate investing online. What's going on everyone? It's Brandon
0: Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets Podcast, here with my co-host, David. So good you can't ignore him, Green. What's up, man? How you doing?
2: Nice and nice um, segue there. That's one of my favorite books and probably one of the best things someone could say about you.
0: That is one of my favorite books as well. So Good to Can I Know You by a guy named Cal Newport, who we have on the show today. And so that actually leads us to today's quiz. Our guest today is named Cal Newport. He is one of my favorite authors of all time. He's written several books, including Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which was is I mean all those three of those books are some of my favorite books of all time. But uh, the quick tip is simple: read those books, especially start with So Good They Can't Ignore You. It's so good you can't ignore it. So check it out. And uh, I know David it made a big impact on you as well. Uh, we interviewed Cal back on episode three thirty of the Bigger Pockets podcast. And where we talked more about that book. Today, we're talking about uh, a little bit different topic. So we're going to talk about uh, just some of the, the overwhelm in the world with technology that we have today, specifically about email uh, and communication uh, and how that's causing us to slow down and be less successful. And so he goes through a lot of what it actually takes to be focused and successful today. It's almost like a deeper dive into deep work. Uh, and so I think, I, again, I love Cal. I love everything he has to say. I think you're going to love this interview. So
3: hang tight for all of that. Listen, it's not coffee or donuts. It's not campfires or s'mores. Not peanut butter or jelly. Great things happen when two good things come together. So why choose between cash flow or appreciation? Rent-to-Retirement's new construction homes give you both. Rent-to-Retirement offers newly built homes that attract the best tenants with fewer repairs and outstanding rental markets. That means more monthly cash flow for you and plenty of equity growth in the background. Plus, their creative financing options let you buy investment properties with just 5% down. Not 20%, not 10%, 5% down. Rent to Retirement offers turnkey new construction homes already built, leased, and managed for you. Their investing experts find the best markets that consistently offer double digit returns and prices as low as $150,000. And they've got more five star reviews than any company on bigger pockets. You invest. Rent to Retirement does the rest. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777.
4: Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your resident's living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet Your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as quantum fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from price-for-life offer and may be increased. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then, when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You, You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Post-Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light dock and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, com.
0: Is there anything you want to say, David, before
2: we get into the interview with Cal? I think Cal is probably one of my favorite guests that we've ever had. He's brilliant and You got to listen closely to what he's saying because he sort of just says it so matter of factly, it's very easy to just be like, oh, that's the case. But it's incredibly smart. It's very well researched. Cal is the person who's sort of, in my mind, one of the front runners of being successful and productive, just not wasting your time. Yeah. So one of my favorite points that he makes is he's basically saying what you and I say, like what you did with the lapse funnel, leads, analyze, pursue, success. You have you isolated yeah. the things that matter most in becoming successful, it's getting leads, it's analyzing them and then pursuing them. It's really just three things you're doing to become a real estate investor. And all the other yeah. questions people have of what should I do, they center around one of those three things. Cal really hits that point for us. He, he highlights how there's certain actions, in a pursuit of a goal that really, really matter. And then there's a lot of fluff that you fill in and training your brain to recognize what really matters is what successful people kind of do. So I just hope that all the listeners as they're listening to this, don't just apply it to real estate investing. I hope they apply it to all the other goals that they have in their life and sort of get that clarity that Cal always tends to bring for me. There we go. I love it.
0: All right, with that said, let's get to our interview with the associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University, Cal Newport. Cal Newport. All right, Cal, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. It is awesome to have you here. Well, thanks for having me back.
1: And and by the way, thanks for location shaming me. You know, I'm in a, a windowless little <laughs> studio in raining Washington, D.C., having to look at <laughs> Maui and Cabo. So thanks for making me feel terrible.
0: Yeah, any, anytime we really, uh, our goal in life is make people feel as bad as possible before they come on the show, so... This is good. All right. Let's 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 dive, in, dive into the last time you were on the show. We talked a lot about digital minimalism. We talked about deep work. Uh, two of my, if I had to say, I'd say two, two of my top 10 favorite books of all time. And I'm not just saying that to butter you up. I really love both of them uh, an immense amount because like my life, I just deal with constant digital overwhelm. And so we talked a lot about kind of how to get through that stuff. But Today, I know you wrote another book, uh, and this one's more targeted towards another huge pain point in my life, and that is email. So I'd love to dive into that a little bit today. Can you tell us real quick, what's the book called? And then uh, even though it might sound obvious, what's it about? Well, the book is is titled A
1: World Without Email, uh, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. And essentially what I do is two things. One, I look at the question of how did we get to this place that we are today where knowledge work is so often just constant, constant back and forth on email or Slack or Messenger, but just constant back and forth messaging. I really get into why this is terrible for both our happiness and our ability to produce work. And then in the the second thing I do, the second part of the book is I make the argument that we're going to move away from that. It's inevitable we're going to move away from that. There's massive productivity and economic growth on the line here. And the only question is whether you're going to be out of front of that trend or not. And I get into some of the principles about what this world without email uh, is
0: going to look like. So maybe we can start there. Why don't we start with why, like e- email and like Slack messages, text messages, all that is designed to make our life better. It's designed to make like communication easier. We are able to, you know, and all this can, we can all point to examples where it does just that, right? Like I'm stuck somewhere and I, I need something done. I can text somebody or I can shoot an email to my assistant and she can take care of something. But why does that make us, why do you say that makes us unhappy and unproductive?
1: So the real villain in this story is actually a workflow that I call the hyperactive hive mind. So what happened is once email spread and it spread very rapidly in the early 1990s, it brought with it sort of as an accidental side effect, this new way of working where the primary way we collaborate or work together on things is just back and forth messaging. Let's just rock and roll online, just send messages ad hoc, unstructured uh, in tools like email in tools like Slack. Now as just a, Protocol like email is great. If you need to send information or a file, it's better than a fax machine. It's better than you know a voicemail. There's nothing wrong with the tool in isolation, but this hyperactive hive mind workflow where we said now because we can, we will do most of our coordination with just these back and forth ad hoc messages. That's what's causing the problem. And the two big culprits here is number one, to maintain all of these ongoing asynchronous back and forth conversations that are digital, you have to constantly monitor. These inboxes, you have to constantly monitor these chat channels, and this constant monitoring is killing us. Our brain cannot network switch that much. Every time we glance at that inbox, it's full of all these messages from people we care about, most of which we cannot resolve right there in the moment. It's a cognitive catastrophe. We begin to fire up all these networks and inhibit all these other networks. Then we try to bring our attention back to the main thing we're doing, and we're at a fraction of our capability, which is why by like noon or 1 o'clock, we're just exhausted and just give up and just start... Uh, scrolling through our inbox to try to find the messages that are easy to answer. It's not because we lack will, it's because we literally exhausted our cognitive resources with all this this context switching. And then also, psychologically, this notion that there's this ever-filling inbox full of communication from people we know and need things from us, we can't keep up with it. And it's always there. That presses all of our psychological buttons, especially in our social instincts, and it makes us miserable. So it makes us less productive and it makes us miserable overall. And so we have a problem on our hands here.
0: That makes sense. It, when you say that, it reminds me, what's that? I, I'm going to butcher the name. It's like the Zerm, Zerminsky effect or something like that. It was based on that, like that, I don't know, psychologist who, who saw the waiter would remember everything, right? When they're at like this, this is like back hundreds, a hundred years ago, whatever. They would remember all the customer's meals, but the, the second that customer left, paid their bill and left, they would forget everything. Right. Cause our minds like keep stuff until we're finished with it. Right. That's kind of the idea here is like, because there's so much that's unfinished, whether it's in our inbox or these always these text messages, every one of those is just is staying in our head and just wearing us down. like a computer is losing our RAM. Is that kind of the, the idea there? Well, that definitely happens. We have a couple of different
1: effects here. So that's definitely an effect, right? So when you see this inbox, you're basically opening up many unresolved tasks and your mind sticks with them. And we all have this sensation that's really weird if you think about it in the abstract, But we're all used to writing and responding to emails in our head, you know, when we're like bored or in the shower or something like this, because our mind is held on to look, people need us. We have to answer them. It has a hard time releasing it. And then there's just a context switch cost. Like you see an email from your uh, producer about an issue with whatever the recording software, you see it there, you're like, I can't answer that right now. I need to get back to like an interview I'm doing. There's a part of your mind that started switching over to all of the semantic networks that are related to your production software and your producer and what's going on. And halfway through that, you wrench your attention back to the main thing you're doing. And now you have this uh, jumbled mismatch of networks that are fired up and inhibited. You're trying to switch. And we can look at this in the neuroscience literature. They can actually show you exactly what's happening. But the point is, is we can't do that well. And so we're in this constant brain fog because of all this constant
0: checking.
3: That makes sense.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So what's the, I mean, the solution can't just be like no email, can it? I mean, like your book's a world without emails. Is that literally what you mean is we can get by without email at all? Or is this like tips and tricks and hacks and here's how to get less email? Like where do we go from there?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's neither of those things actually. So the real title of the book should be, you know, a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow. It's a little bit, a little bit less sexy, I guess, (laughs) but what I'm arguing for is This workflow where we just figure things out on the fly with digital messaging, like it makes complete sense if there's two of you, right? Because this is the way that we naturally coordinate. It just doesn't scale. It doesn't scale when you have, you know, 16 members and seven clients and nine vendors and, you know, it it doesn't scale, right? And so what we need to do is when we realize this is the problem, the problem is the hyperactive hive mind. The problem is that unscheduled messaging is the main way we handle things. The solution is not going to be in your inbox itself. It's not going to be tips about batching. It's not going to be turning off notifications. It's not going to be uh, auto responders or better norms about response times or anything like this. You actually have to go and look at, here are the underlying processes that make up all the things I do in my work. You might not have ever named them before, right? But, but we should name them. There's the like deal with client issue process. There's the produce, uh, get an episode ready for production process. There's the whatever, right? Come up with new ad copy ideas process. And you can look at each of these things say right now, for most of these, the way that we typically coordinate and execute these processes is just hive mind. Let's just rock and roll, go back and forth. But what could we do instead? And you go process by process and say, is there a, a system we can put in place here that is going to reduce the amount of unscheduled back and forth messaging required to actually get this thing done? And so you fix the underlying processes so that you're not talking over email, that email's you know, it's for sending information, it's for broadcasting stuff, it's for sending files, but interaction is not happening with just these asynchronous messaging. And you just start doing this process by process. It takes the pressure out of your inbox. You don't need better tips for dealing with your inbox if you don't have the motivation to need to be there in the first place. And so I like to go, we got to go under under the inbox itself and radically rethink how we actually structure all of this different collaboration in
0: our organizations. So how do we do that? Like, what are some of the, the things that you've found work in your life or with people you've worked with?
1: Well, there's a couple of different, we call them templates maybe for solutions that you see come up time and again. All right. So, one thing that, that was common when I was studying teams that, that have gone through this is gaining some sort of transparency about who's working on what. So, when you're just doing the hive mind, okay, it's just all spread over our inboxes, right? Like, yeah, I, I emailed you about this. You emailed me about this. I'll just, t- I'll, I'll check with you with a Slack message. But a common solution for people getting away from that is we have a, A Trello board or a Flow board, or using Asana or something like this, Mm -hmm. but a task board where we can see all the things the team is working on. We can all see it. We can see the status of all the things we're working on. All the information related to the things we're working on is right there, like maybe attached to these virtual cards, and we can see it all right here and in one place. It's not spread over inboxes. It's not informal. We're all on the same page. And these are often these tools are often coupled with some notion of like a regular, short, highly structured status meeting. All right, let's look at the board what did you do yesterday? What are you working on today? What do you need? What do you need from everyone else in order to get that done? Great, do it. Everything you need's on this board. Update the board when you're done, right? So that's common. Another thing that's common, I call them communication protocols, where people begin thinking through, all right, here's regularly occurring things that requires us to do some back and forth. What are some protocols for doing this that doesn't just involve, I'll shoot you a message and you get back? And so that's where you see things like office hours emerge twice a week during this time, always available. My door's open. Zoom is on. My phone, you know, my ringer's on. Uh, grab me if you need me. And all throughout the week, anytime something pops up or someone kind of needs you where it could generate and, and spawn a back and forth email exchange, like, yeah, just grab me in my office hours. I'll be there, right? So these type of protocols are also, also common. So there's a bunch of different templates we see, and the right answer depends on the type of business you're in. But this is the kind of the flavor of things you see that all, they might be a little bit more work, a little bit less flexible, but really reduce the interaction that happens in email, reduce the interaction that happens on Slack. And that's where all the wins are found.
0: That's, uh, I love the way you phrased that. And I love that you brought up Asana, because this is what my company, my real estate company, we call, we're called Open Door Capital. And we originally were all based on email. Like everything was send an email to this person, send an email to that person. Everything was back and forth. And it's so easy for things to get lost and jumbled, uh, which is where we moved over to Asana. And now, like, I, mean, I don't do anything in my inbox. I did not even realize this other than the Asana messages that come in my inbox, which I honestly just delete everyone, I don't even open them. Like, everything we have is run through Asana, which is our, our project management. We just manage our our workflow. Uh, all the leads that come in on our properties, they go in Asana. Everything gets filtered through that way. And so it's, it's much easier. It's much different than just relying on somebody waiting for an email to come through. Now, we still do the occasional email where I'll, I, you know, I usually it's like, hey, if somebody sent me an email, I forward it to my team. And then they first thing they usually do is they throw it in Asana just to get it out of email because email is where things tend to die in my business. Uh, I'm curious, David, uh, in your life, have you found the same thing? I know, like, as a real estate agent, uh, email, like you have CRMs, you have you have tools for that, right? To manage your, your business. Like, how does that work
2: for you guys? I have so much flying through my head listening to Cal talk right now that I'm trying to make sense of as we're going through this. I know the one thing I'm thinking about is that we typically say, I don't have time. I don't have time. And I've realized I I almost always have time I can figure out a way to make it more efficient. But what I don't have is energy. I do 100% run out of like the mental stamina of wanting to do this thing. And, and for me, it's when my phone feels like it weighs 500 pounds just one more freaking phone call or email and I'm like I'm going to scream. It's what Cal's talking about. I'm trying to figure out how this works. What I do to in our world is exactly what Cal is saying is I I I don't look at like what what's in front of me. I say what do I have to do to accomplish the task? So like to put a person in contract, we have to get a client to feel comfortable writing an offer that's going to win. Now there's a bunch of things that have to happen and If you focus on those things, you you find that you become much more efficient. So, we've used systems like email and CRMs as sort of like a choke point where you have all this stuff flying around in the world that wants to get done, and you want to get it in one centralized location. But I've put a person in charge of monitoring that choke point who actually has to make judgment calls on what should be done, who should do it, and then we focus on on being effective. That's the only way I've been able to manage the mortgage company the real estate company the books we're writing the podcast like you know pretty much everything that goes on i'm curious what cal's advice would be for like how we're doing this and if we're on the right path
1: yeah well well first of all what both of you are doing is fantastic like the what you are working on is basically the vision of a world without email that i'm trying to actually solidify with with underlying principles and science in this book is you know you're thinking about the actual Collaboration has to happen, the actual interactions that have to a- happen, the actual executions, and asking what's the best way to do this, given the reality of the human brain. Like, just because you could, everything you guys have just mentioned, you could just do, as you said, just rock and rolling. Like, let's just go for it. It could happen in email, uh, but you just don't have the cognitive capacity. So, like what David was talking about, that's the third template that's common when you look at people getting away from the hive mind, which is this automatic process template. Whereas, okay, here's something that's Repeatable. It's this step followed by this step followed by this step. So if we have to get a competitive offer together, there's there's like whatever. I don't know how it works. There's three things that happens. We have to get the right comps. There's a conversation we have to have with the client. There's a then there's like a, few, a lot of logistical steps. So if we have to gather this information to put into the contract. Right. If you know there's something that happens again and again, this comes up a lot too. Of like, okay, we are going to figure out how to get from one to two to three to four to five. In a way that minimizes as much unscheduled messaging as possible. And so there you go. There's like the the assistant pulls this information and schedules the comp meeting. There's a template for the meeting that prepares the client. That information goes into the system that uh, then gets filled into this. And then your Adobe whatever with the e-signature thing gets put together. You know, I don't know the details, but you can imagine there's this process. This follows this follows this. The thing that unifies everything uh, you both are doing, and I think is the key idea for someone else who wants to just get started with this, is that the poison here is this unscheduled back and forth messaging. The, the degree to which you have to, you're going to send something, then someone will send something back, and then you'll send it back to them, they'll send it back. Again, you can do about two or three of those conversations in an inbox fine. You get the 30 and you're hosed and i think that's a really key point because often people are thinking like well wait i i want to like minimize friction in the moment or i want to i want to minimize complexity or i want to minimize the time i have to spend so if something takes more time up front i don't want to do it none of those are the right metrics it's the back and forth how much back and forth do i have to do each additional unscheduled message i'm going to have to wait for and respond to you want to think about it like they're 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 turning up the current on the electrode that is you know in a inopportune part on your body like each extra message is making things all the more like oh my god this is worse like you should have that same fear of that that is the thing we're minimizing and look, i have hundreds of pages of science that says this stuff is terrible it's the back and forth let me just wait till they email me i'll email them back is that is what is killing us more than anything else so i'm very impressed both of you are great case studies essentially
0: well thank you that's a
2: a goal in life be a good case study for one of your books (laughs)
0: That's seriously.
2: I, you know where I see this, Cal? I'll have agents on my team that are responding to emails from the other agent on a deal we're never going to get. And they're going back and forth and they're like working till 1030. And They say working. And then I'm like, well, what were you doing? I was talking to this agent. You mean that house that's getting 20 offers and we're not even close and we've already told our client we're not going to get it? You're still answering. There's this belief that like you have to engage in it, that you're wrong if if you don't, or that the if if the other person's feelings get hurt, that you're at fault. And I think that's what leads to that. And you see, I see people spun out, burned out. They constantly say, I'm so busy, I'm overwhelmed. And I'm like, you sold four houses last year. How on earth did that happen? And I think what you're talking about is exactly what leads to that.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there's this this equivalency of of busyness to productivity that's this killer. I think one of the reasons why you see you, you often see these innovations in small businesses where there's like a clear entrepreneurial leader is because if you're a clear entrepreneurial leader of like a, a a real estate company or something like this, you're really focused probably on results like what works what doesn't this isn't working, let's move It's why most of my case studies in this book are relatively small companies with entrepreneurial leaders who are willing to to move with it uh, It's very common, especially when you move to big organizations a that type of think is. Harder, Um, and B, there's there's a certain fool's gold comfort if you're an employee in embracing this sort of faux busyness because it's very predictable. It's very you know I get it. If I'm just doing a lot of email, I feel like I'm busy. I'm demonstrating that I'm busy. I understand it. I know it's very easy to do too. I mean, I'm just on here doing stuff. I never really have to think that hard. And there's some comfort in that. Like, I know what it means to, to do well, but if you run a company, like, I don't care how I feel. I don't, busyness means nothing. No one pays me to be busy. House sales matter. Like, it's all that matters. So if this is not, if this is not moving houses, I'm not going to be able to make payroll or something like this. And I say it's a fool's gold because what happens is when you fall into this trap of like, ah, I'm busy and at least I know what's going on, you're not producing and you don't produce long enough, you know. no matter how quickly you're responding to emails, like eventually that trap door is going to open because where's the actual numbers? Where are you actually producing?
0: That's a really good point. I think in real estate investing as well, there's all these things like people, when they're trying to buy rental properties, trying to buy their first duplex, trying to whatever that thing is, there's so many ways to be I don't know what the word is yeah busy there's so many ways to be busy with things you're trying to do stuff but none of it actually matters have you found any i guess in your in your research or your study like how does somebody really hone in on that like to know like what are the vital tasks that actually have to get done that I'm not just busy but I'm doing the most important things do you have any suggestions for people trying to figure that out
1: well like a hack that works pretty well here is actually use your email inbox to help you figure out what are my processes. And then we can do this trio. So what you do is you're like, I'm going to, for one day, every email I answer, I'm going to ask, okay, actually what underlying process is this email pushing forward, you know, and name it, write it down, right? Every email that, that, you, that you, that you answer. And this are going to list out like, okay, these are all of the processes that I'm actually involved with. This has to do with bidding. This has to do with whatever. Right. And that's a good way to actually see here's the things where I'm actually doing lots of interaction on Then triage, right? So before you jump to the step of like, now let me try to optimize all these processes, to the degree that you're able, and if you're like an entrepreneur or something like this, a solopreneur, especially if you work by yourself and you have a lot of autonomy, be radical. Like, what are the things here, Pareto principle-wise, that are um, uh, really moving the needle, right? Great. Everything else let's get rid of. Or drastically minimize it, even if there's little bits of value here and there, there's a little bit of opportunities you'll move. Like, I don't care about little bits of opportunities. If this is going to double my house sales, let's do that, right? So you you triage. And then once you triage, like you just have to have this conversation, work it out. Like, how do I execute this process? How do I get into information, coordinate with the people I need to coordinate with, and produce the desired outcome for this process? If you haven't named it or thought about it before, the answer is almost certainly the hyperactive hive mind. So I like, that's that's going to be the answer. See it and know it and own it. And then go through each of these and you can do one at a time, uh, but say, what can I do now to get rid of the hive mind? And again, be willing to be radical, be willing to spend money, right? I mean, be willing to say, I'm hiring someone. I can consolidate these three things with one full-time person. Uh, I'm going to buy this software, whatever, and we're going to put in this workflow process. Be willing to be radical there. And, and, and write down definitively, this is how we do this. This is how we do that. All the time trying to minimize how many unscheduled back and forth messages have to happen for this, pro- for this
2: process to execute. You know, Cal, where we saw this was when COVID changed what was considered the norm. The SOPs all changed. So in the real estate world of being an agent, it was always expected. You have to go to a house, you give a presentation, you look at the house, you get the agreement signed. That was just what everybody did. And then COVID comes and you can't go to the house anymore. And I didn't have a hard time adapting to this at all. It's like, listen, guys, all we need is a piece of paper that says we have the right to sell this house. How we get there is completely up to us. It is, yes, very easy to go to their house and meet them. It builds comfort, it builds rapport, but we can do that on Zoom. We can do that on a phone call. We can do other things to set up that trust that we need to get to this point. And I feel like the people that did exactly what you're saying, that adapted and adjusted, and they didn't just say, well, status quo is you have to do this, were the ones that came out on top. And that went for the world of real estate investing and everything else. I mean, I don't know if this book could have come out at a better time because we're all now trying to rapidly transition and say like, what I used to do doesn't work anymore. And how do I get on board with the way that is going to work? We're we're definitely seeing that because two things happened
1: with the forced remote transition that happened during the pandemic. One, anyone using the hyperactive hive mind found it got more hyperactive, right? When When you push everyone remote suddenly, the amount of messaging that goes back and forth, if that's how you normally coordinate things, just exploded. So it made the pain point higher. But two, it exposed people to this idea of, oh, we can radically change things and it's okay. So, Like you said with the the real estate showings, this is happening all over the industry. It's like, oh, I guess we don't have to have an in-person meeting for this. I guess we don't have to have an editor do this, right? I guess we can work from all over the country, and and it does actually function. So it puts you in the mindset of we can do different things at the same time that the pain point of what we're doing right now uh, gets larger and larger. So I think it's a huge opportunity. Right now to make these moves. As long as everything else is being changed, before we just go back and re-ossify into the ways before, well, everyone is open to doing things differently. Now is the time to say, forget busyness. That's nothing. Forget the hive mind. I don't care about flexibility. How do we actually what do we do? How do we do it? What do we do? How do we do it? Let's optimize, optimize, optimize. And it, it's a mindset, by the way, that created Massive wealth in the industrial sector—the entire, essentially, wealth on which the developed world was built—was this 50x increase in productivity that happened in the 20th century in industrial manufacturing because they began to obsess about how do we actually build things. What's the right way to do it? Is there a better way? Let's let's really think through. You know, what's the best way to build a car? I mean, there's a better way to build a car. Maybe we should have bet, you know, a lot of innovation. We haven't even started that thinking for the most part at a large scale of knowledge work. So the yeah, potential cool. here is massive. And I think now is the perfect time to do it.
0: How does this apply to meetings? Like uh, does if you try to get more away from the email and more into these more uh, process driven or however you want to phrase that, does that just mean we have more and more and more meetings or because that lead to less meetings? How do you how do you view meetings in all this? Yeah, so there's, there's a double-edged
1: sword with meetings, right? So the, the positive edge of that sword is that real-time communication is incredibly more efficient than asynchronous communication. And, and I, I, I go deeply into this in the book, but essentially, especially if there's voice involved because there's a whole other information channel here than if it's just linguistic, just text. So me and you talking with five minutes can do the equivalent of 25 emails. 25 emails that are going to be sent back and forth over a week, each email, which is going to require 10 times we check waiting for it to come in So that's 250 disruptive email checks avoided, right? So that's the positive side of it. If we can just talk and work things out, we can do things very quickly. Uh, The negative side of meetings is that there's, there's a, a plague in organizations right now of what I call uh, productivity by proxy. You basically say, I know we got to make, this is important. Like there's a project or a milestone. I don't really trust myself to you know, get this on a list and make a plan for it and execute. The thing I do trust myself to do though is if there's a meeting on my calendar, I'll go. Yeah. So here's what we'll do. We'll set up a meeting or we'll set up a recurring meeting. Now I don't have to worry about it. It's off my mind because, hey, when I get to that day, I'll see there's a meeting. And I, I always attend meetings because I look at my calendar. It's the one productivity thing I do. And therefore, I feel good that progress will be made. And you multiply that by six or seven projects. And now all you're ever doing is being in meetings. Once you take this process-centric approach, however, here's what happens. Once we're thinking in general, like how do we execute this thing that happens all the time? If you think that through, you're not going to need three hours of meetings a week where, hey, let's just, what's going on with this? How's it going? Uh, Because once you start having real systems in place, you're not going to use meetings as a proxy for productivity. Now, you are going to have probably real-time interaction, but it's going to be structured. It's going to be fast. It's going to not have a very big footprint because you're, you know, you're, you're really thinking things through. So, so we, can, we can solve the problems of meetings once we adopt this mindset of just being really explicit about how do we actually want to do this. So we're, We probably will have more real-time conversation, but that real-time conversation, and we see this in the case studies in the book, it's usually like two very focused 20-minute meetings a day on top of which many processes are quickly synchronized plus maybe like a couple general office hours that people hold that that, that takes care of everything else that pops up right so real time communication fantastic but a relatively limited amount of that can do a lot of work if you're very careful about it
2: that makes sense that makes a lot of sense so brandon you've got a family you're running several different businesses you're in several different parts you're writing books you're you're doing a lot and you have a ton of communication that has to happen but at the same time you're someone that I really respect because you've committed, I'm only going to put this much time in a day towards work. You have to be efficient. Do you mind sharing with our listeners some of the ways you're applying what Cal is talking about? And then maybe we can see if Cal will give you some coaching right here on how you could do that better. Sure.
0: Yeah, and and I love that. Uh, the reason I asked about the meeting thing because I I feel this, this dichotomy, this problem of like, like I, a, a phrase that I say a lot is, we will move at the speed at which we meet. If I meet with my team once a month, we'll move very, very slowly. If I met with them every single day, twice a day to say, what's the next thing that we're going to do? We would move very, very, very quickly. At the same time, so it's exactly what you said, Cal, Like there's that meetings do help, but we move very quickly when we identify the problems. Meetings also become very routine and very boring and very much like you just put it on your schedule because people don't want to make a decision. Um, A lot of meetings are simply because people are afraid to step up and take ownership of a problem and just like to, to answer something. I found that in my in my life. And so the way that we have solved this is, and again, it's exactly what you just said. Uh, we implemented a system called EOS. I've talked about it a number of times here on the show. It's based on a, a book called Traction uh, by Gino Wickman. It came out a few years ago. And it's basically an operating system for your entrepreneurial business, right? So the whole idea is like, this is how you do, it's all process, like this is how you do you know the process of hiring this is how you, who you bring on this is your core values this is what when you meet this is how you meet this is what your meeting is this is how it gets done and so what i found is that by meeting more intentionally with my team and literally it's one time a week now we meet we I, i've got down to meeting one time a week now my team meets on their own several times with different departments but we have one company meeting once a week and in that one hour call because we are very deliberate on how the meeting is run it eliminated probably 10 hours of meetings that I was in beside that, right? Because now we have the right kind of meeting, the right kind of structure. And so that's how I've been able to run a lot of my life is off like one meeting a week. Like I probably meet once a week for bigger pocket stuff. I probably meet once a week for open door capital stuff. Uh, And because we run them correctly, we're able to get through. So now as much as like the whole idea of we will move at the speed at which we meet, which is still true to a degree today. I like to say there's a lot of freedom in uh, limited structure, meaning like it's 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 structure, but it's limited to like a set amount of time and location and place. And so we we meet every Thursday, 9 a.m. We knock out our call and we move on. So that's kind of how I've I've done that. How does that jive with your with your thoughts, uh, Cal?
1: Well, it, it's perfect. I mean, I, I get into that in the book, like the, yes. the structured structured meetings, <laughs> structured meetings that are part of a structured process. Mm-hmm. Is that is, that is the secret sauce, right? And and there's, there's various structures that have been successful. Like for example, uh, these agile methodology inspired processes, they have this whole structure of the, of the standing status meeting It's standing is kind of a, you, you, you're supposed to stand up because you're very quick, but it's, it's incredibly structured. Um, what happened yesterday? What are you working on today? What do you need? Right. That's the structure there. Boom, boom, boom. I cite this interesting paper in the book about a professor, professor at university of Maryland, a computer scientist who brought this over to his research group. And he gathered a lot of data because he's a nerd like me, right? So he's like, what works? What didn't work? And tuning that just right made all the difference. If that meeting got 15 minutes more slack, it fell apart. And they, they really died. It was like getting it just right. It's the right frequency, the right structure. They really take it seriously, just just like you're doing. The other example is like what we see, the sort of background research meeting protocols you would see, like Jeff Bezos famously did. Uh, in the book, I talk about George Marshall, who was in charge of all the US armed forces during the World War II, uh, who finished work by five every day, by the way. Uh, he did this as well, which is like, okay, if you're going to meet with me, you know, here's how it's going to happen. You're going to have completely thought through what's going on. You're going to have prepared an understanding of, okay, here's the issue and how we're going to solve the issue. You're going to have a very clear, like, okay, this is the question I have or where I need your input. And if you weren't completely prepared, Marshall was going to kick you out of there. Bezos actually made you put this in writing. You mm-hmm. had to submit it to him in writing, uh, in advance of this meeting, everything explained, here's the background, here's the point of the meeting, here's the decision point we can't make without input, here's the thing, here's the actual input we need to make this decision. If that didn't pass muster, he wasn't walking into the room, right? And so that's another way of structuring meetings. Uh, but structure is everything with meetings, and you don't have structure until you're thinking in terms of processes, which is why I love more generally the EOS idea, which, I again, I get into. Traction's a great book. I, I get into Sam Carpenter. You know, Michael Gerber talks about this in The E-Myth. Yep. Uh, All of these, this idea comes up again and again in entrepreneurial circles. And I'm trying to push it in the broader circles, including like your own life, your own life as an employee. It's incredibly systems focused. And I think people get nervous about this sometimes, right? Because they think knowledge work is creative. You know, we got to have autonomy. uh, We can't take this, you know, writing computer code and make it into a assembly line. And this is really true. And my big point is we have to separate execution from all the workflows that surround the work that's executed. We can give knowledge workers lots of autonomy on how you write the computer code, how you come up with the whatever ad copy. Great. That's creative work. You're skilled. Yeah. This is what makes knowledge work satisfying. But everything that surrounds it, like how we figure out what ads we're working on, how we get approval, how we move the assets around. We better believe that we're going to systematize and process You know that six ways to Sunday because that is where you get the sort of huge returns. That's where you're able to take these human brains and get the most out of them because they're not stuck in this morass of informal ad hoc on the fly type organizing. So uh, this is great, you don't need to read the book. I think both of you guys basically uh, should just be, you should just be a chapter in the book itself.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. I still, I'm probably, I'm showing my, my highlight reel here. I still spend way too much time on email and, on completely shallow work. I spend the majority of my time on. So, but thank you. Very kind of you to say. So let, let, let's relate this a little bit to people who maybe aren't in like, I don't say not knowledge work. Cause I think most people are going to be in some type of knowledge work, uh, especially with real estate investing. It's largely, I mean, it's almost entirely knowledge work uh, unless you're out there actually fixing toilets and stuff. But how does this apply to the person who's maybe like, well, I don't have a big team of people. I'm just trying to, you know, I'm working with a real estate agent. I got a contractor. We're just trying to like buy houses occasionally and fix them up. Like, does this stuff apply to them as well on a smaller scale? Maybe. Yeah. I think every, everyone could be doing this and you can be doing this
1: just in your own life. And you, know, one of the places this comes up is when you talk about employees at big companies, for example, where their boss is not on board, right? They're, they're not Cal Newport fans. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like, no answer my email. Right. Oh. Uh, even in those situations, if you identify still, I'm going through my inbox and every email, what process is this associated with? Write them all down. Here's my processes. Okay, let me try to optimize each of these to minimize the back and forth. If you asymmetrically optimize these, just given what I can control, I can't control anyone else. Just given what I can control, how can I reduce or minimize the amount of back and forth messaging required for each of these processes? Even in that context, it's a huge win. So if you're an independent, you're, you're, you're just getting started in real estate investing, maybe you're doing it on the side do this from the ground up. Here's my processes, write them down. Here's my EOS, the, 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 the use the Wickman terminology. Uh, and just keep in mind, the metric is I, I want to minimize back and forth. In fact, this becomes even more important for people who are side hustling this at the moment because they have to minimize that cognitive footprint to some degree, right? I mean, they, they're they're at the insurance agency all day and, and doing Zoom meetings with the HR department or whatever. They only have so much time available. So if you actually want to like supercharge a side hustle for something like this, Start with that process thinking. I, I, I tell the story in the book about, I ran a company when I was a teenager in the 1990s. Uh, I ran a tech company and I was in high school and this was before smartphones and this was before laptops. So like I was literally unreachable. There, there was no way, I was in school and there was no way you could reach me. But we're running a company. We had a team in India that was doing the development work. We had uh, clients that were paying like reasonable, like five-figure five style uh, contracts, which were big for a high school student at the time. And we had to figure that out. And so we got aggressively process focused. Like We have to figure out every process here so that these clients will be completely comfortable even though they can't reach us. And even though that's what they're used to with other people, I can just call you up on the phone or I can just shoot you an email. And so uh, we just sort of process the hell out of that, right? It's like, okay, here's our extranet. You're going to log in. There's a work blog so you can see what the team was working on. So you won't be worried about that. There's clear milestones. Every document is posted in there once you sign it. We have these clear, we had this creative brief process to make sure that everyone was on the same page of what we're doing. We processed the hell out of it and we were able to run a business with basically no back and forth communication. I think about that today when I think about side hustles because it's kind of the same idea. If you're careful about these processes to minimize the back and forth you need with messaging, you can really keep the footprint very reasonable and not have it be something that is competing with your attention and draining your energy throughout your whole day when you're trying to do everything else.
0: Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. It reminds me even like somebody who's let's say trying to flip a house or trying to flip their first house or a second house or their, their house flipper. They're got a big rehab going on. Like a lot of what takes place, the going back and forth with a contractor, the back and forth with a, it, oh, it's all systematizable. Like every single bit of it. I mean, I have friends. I've never done this and I should. But like who would have a they have a workbook that has UPCs of like every single item at Home Depot that they would buy and it alternates if they're out of the first thing. And so it's like, oh, yeah, this is the paint we use. This is the brand we use. This is the final look. Here's a picture of it. And they do their entire rehab. And so guys like I mean, Tarl Yarber is a friend of mine. He lives out here uh, in, in Maui, or at least he's staying in Maui right now. And he he flips lots of houses. And yet he. P- like he told me the other day, he's like, yeah, I never even step foot in them anymore. Like, I don't, he, He's in Maui for six months at least now. He doesn't walk through the flips that he's doing. Why? Because it's all systematized and processed. And again, it could be a person on their own, their very first thing. But just thinking that way, which is why this interview is so important, is once we our minds start going that way of what are these processes that we can build, everything just becomes easier. Because at the end of the day, I, I I love to say that almost everything that we think we're making like a judgment call on like in our heads, like, Ah, uh, should I? You know, whatever it doesn't matter. Should I date that person? Should I paint that building blue or red? Everything is actually a com- like a computer program that we're running in our head. It's an algorithm that we're 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 running. So when we can take that out of our head and put it on a piece of paper or into a workflow or into a sauna. Now all of a sudden, everything is easier. One example would be uh, repairs with rental properties. When you own rental properties. You got to account for some kind of repairs. It happened on a regular basis. So how much do you account for? Is it 5% of the rent? Is it 10% of the rent? Is it 20%? So every investor is like, we're making this up every time on our own when we're analyzing a property. We're just trying to like wing it. But when we really sit down and go, well, what am I actually doing? What is the process I'm doing right now? like I realized, and I, I put this actually in a future book that doesn't come out for another six months or so. Um, I'm writing a book on multifamily, but I took that whole thing and I was like, let's just make that an algorithm that we can say, what are all the factors, the age of the property, the condition of the property, this, 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 this. Now we can put it on a piece of paper and now I could have a 15 a year old, uh, you know, assistant high school kid. They could run my deal analysis because I just took what was in my head and put it on paper. So anyway, that's just a long drawn out way of explaining. of explaining, uh, I like what you're doing. That's good stuff.
1: Well, yeah. And and so, so part of what happens here and why people don't do this enough is, well, they think what they're trying to optimize is time, right? And so it takes time up front to build out and figure out one of these systems. Whereas in the moment, it doesn't take much time to send that one email you're sending in the yeah. moment as part of a, a dozen that's going to be sent. Like it's quick for me to be like, Uh, no, I don't like that paint color. Make it bluer, right? Like, that's just real quick. I sent an email. Whereas if I have to sit down and copy all the UPCs, come on, that's going to take time. But that's the wrong metric. You're not trying to minimize. It seems like what people are really trying to minimize is like, okay, take the longest amount of time contiguously I ever spend on this. I want to minimize that. Yeah, that'll lead you to doing emails all the time. But what you're really trying to minimize is the what's the cognitive footprint? How much like back and forth, how much am I going to have to monitor and be responsive Mm -hmm. to this thing that's happening here on my email or on Slack before this gets done? That's the real cost. And I think the real estate analogy here is is like some sort of repair-based carrying cost because we're used to that in real estate, right? Like, okay, yeah, it costs a little bit more money up front what I'm doing, but if that reduces my monthly outlay, very quickly I'm going to be in the black on this decision. Well, this is just like a cognitive carrying cost, right? Mm -hmm. You do the work up front to figure out how to make these systems work. Yeah, it's more up front, but you're reducing this carry every month. And by carry, I just, you know, again, in this context, I mean, how much do I have to be responsive and talk to people and do un- unscheduled back and forth? And you're going to end up way, way in the black. So don't think about, like my message to the audience is like, you're not optimizing time. Yeah. Uh, you're optimizing back and forth interactions. And that, if you can get that low, I mean, I'll put a lot of time in upfront. If you can guarantee me that I don't have to answer an email for the next month after that.
5: hundred <laughs> percent. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP.
4: Real talk for a second, gentlemen. 52% of men over 40 experience some form of ED between the ages of 40 and 70. But it's always been a taboo topic. HIMSS is changing men's healthcare by providing affordable access to treatment online. That means no hassle and no uncomfortable doctor's visits. Just answer a series of questions on their site and the medical provider will determine the right treatment option for you and ship it direct. For free and in discreet packaging. And it's all 100% online. No insurance is necessary. You pay one low price for treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. Hims has hundreds of thousands of trusted subscribers. If ED is something you're struggling with, Hims can help change that. So start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash biggerpockets. That's hymns.com slash biggerpockets for your personalized ED treatment options. hymns.com slash biggerpockets. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash biggerpockets for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today.
0: You know, another area of my life that this really applies to is uh, property management, like owning rental properties and having to manage tenants. I would say 99.99% of everything involved with managing tenants is systematizable and can be put into a workbook. Like, I mean, I wrote a book on managing rentals for that very reason. Like, this is like everything can be written down on how you deal with this stuff. So, like, I, I don't deal with emails. I don't even deal with calls. I don't deal with any of that stuff with tenants. And most, most everything now is digital. It's on a website. They handle it. I like, even just like things that you think would be a completely absurd. Like, hey, I've, you know, there was a fire in my unit. Like, there's a system. There's a process that you can handle that stuff. Uh, And so it's just amazing how much can actually be systematized and then how easy that thing becomes when the system runs it rather than you running it. Uh, David, were you going to say something there? I think I cut you off.
2: Yeah, I wanted to ask Cal about what advice he has for those that are hearing this message, but maybe they're not. How would I describe this? I know I didn't value this until I got super busy and I realized what a drain this was on me and then my performance was affected because I just had no energy. When I wasn't doing a lot, I didn't value energy or or time. Those emails, they're almost a welcome distraction when you don't have anything going on or you don't want to get on the phone and make phone calls or there's something that you're uncomfortable with. Well, it gets to be like addicting to just say I'm answering emails and that becomes your escape out. Do you mind sharing some advice of what you found for those that don't yet maybe understand how valuable this is and why they should?
1: Well, it, it's a good point and it's something – for the last, whatever, 10 months the pandemic's been going on, for example, I've been talking about this a lot on my podcast. So I have this podcast where people ask questions right? and we go back and forth, right? And so the, the, these type of issues come up a lot. And we ended up actually coining this term, uh, the deep life, where you have different buckets of your life and you're really trying to go in and optimize each, focus on what matters and get rid of what doesn't matter. So in some sense, if you have these other areas of your life that is important, like community. Contemplation, constitution was my term for like your health or this or that. Other areas that are very important that you're taking very seriously and you're you're focusing on things that matter and trying to get rid of things that don't matter. It gives you a nice pressure on your work and puts you more into a mindset of I want to get done what matters and not waste time on what doesn't. And I've been preaching this for the last ten months because I think it's what a lot of people need right now is to get more systematic outside of the context of work. I have these buckets. I have craft. It's what we call needlessly alliterative, but craft is the work stuff, right? But then you got community and you have contemplation, which could be like ethics and philosophy and spirituality. Uh, you have, we sometimes call it celebration, but like the this, this stuff you enjoy doing and get real pleasure out of and gratitude is the things that, you know, the non-work stuff you have real expertise in. And you go bucket by bucket and say, I want to go in there and 80-20 this. What's the stuff that really matters? I want that to be in my life. What's the stuff that gets in the way? I want to reduce it. And when that's your mindset for your whole life, Work falls into place. Now, if you're not doing this on any of these other buckets, then you can end up, you're right, filling your time with email or something like that because busyness, you'll, you'll do that and you'll numb yourself on your phone otherwise, right? YouTube, social media, and email. But that is not a sustainable strategy. I think a lot of people burnt out with this over the pandemic. You know, The resilience comes from actually thinking through, here's what matters in my life. I want to do this stuff that matters. I want to make time for it, right? So do that whole, if you do that whole overhaul in your whole life, it puts the right pressure on work. It also, by the way, probably will prevent your work from getting to that point where you're just completely overwhelmed and you're doing this stuff out of a survival instinct. And even then you don't have time for the other things. And I didn't used to talk about these issues, but there has been a huge interest, I would say, and pressure and trying to figure out these bigger issues of a more resilient, meaningful life. And so again, on that podcast for the last 10 months, like we get into that. Like we, we, we really get into it. And there's been a great response because you're absolutely right. The rest of your life really matters how you approach what's happening at work.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, Cal, I, I got a couple of questions here. I'm not going to get to all of them today. I got a whole bunch for you, but I'm curious. Like in research in this book, like as you were putting together the, the the research and the book and reading all the articles and all that stuff, anything surprise you? Anything in there just be like, wow, I didn't I didn't expect that, or you know, that's a super interesting thing. I I just think that's an interesting question to ask authors. So anything surprise you in there? Well, one of the things
1: I didn't expect was the accidental nature of this way of working, mm. right? I sort of assumed this is convenient for bosses or something like this. There's some reason why we we switch to let's do lots and lots of communication all the time. Let's just rock and roll on in the inboxes. And I went down this whole rabbit hole in the research on a corner of the philosophy of technology known as technological determinism. And technological determinism is this, this idea of understanding society and technology that argues that in a lot of cases, the mere presence of a new technology can really impact how people behave in a way that no one planned, like unintentional, right? Uh, It's not serving a particular purpose. It's not part of an agenda. It's not because it gets this group from A to B. Just the mere presence of that technology just changes the way that we behave. And it's pretty arbitrary. And sometimes it could be in our benefit. A lot of times it's not. I'm pretty convinced you know, I'm pretty convinced that email is an act, I mean, not email itself, but this way, this hyperactive high mind working way that we did after email got here, that's an accident. That the mere presence of this low friction digital communication tool stumbled us into this way of working. And then once we're in there, we're stuck because we have this focus on autonomy and knowledge work. That was the second surprise. Uh, I wrote a whole New Yorker article on this recently. One guy, Peter Drucker, one guy basically Uh, coined the term knowledge work in the 1950s and spent the next 50 years convincing everyone autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. Objectives matter, but don't tell anyone else how to work. And so that was also really interesting. So we accidentally fell into this way of working. And because of one guy's influence, we were convinced it's not my business to tell my employees how they should work. It's not my business to think about what's the best way to organize. That's up to the individual. They should buy a productivity book if they want to be more organized. And so we got stuck. I had no idea either of those things were true until I got started. No idea that this was an accident. No idea that we're stuck because of one person convinced us that we shouldn't really monkey around with how work actually happens in organizations. Uh, And so those were two very surprising, very fascinating threads that I ended up pulling pretty hard.
0: That makes sense. All right. A couple more questions. Number one, key challenges. What did you, what did you face when writing this? Uh, Anything just like either as an author or from the information? Well, it took me a long time to write this book. Uh, you know,
1: I started writing this book immediately after deep work came out mm. because I really wanted to understand why is it so hard to do? Why is it so hard to do deep work? Right. And it, okay. It wasn't nearly as casual as I made out in that book, deep work, which is like, well, whatever we have too much email, we'll fix it. Once we realize focus is important. It's like, nope. Uh, it is a huge, deep problem. It's the way we organize all of our work. You know, uh, so I've been working, I had to work on the book for a long time. I, I put it on pause, wrote digital minimalism, came back to keep working on it, right? Because to me, it was such an epic topic and people were so far from it, right? It, it wasn't like this was, everyone was about to have this idea that I didn't feel any particular urgency. So to pull together all these threads, it was a real, real challenge, right? I mean, I, I get into the whole history of how email spreads. So I'm, I'm deep in the New York Times archives, trying to trace every use of the word email mm-hmm. through the year, the 1980s to try to figure out how it spread. I had to figure out all about the philosophy of technology and technological determinism. I had to talk to all these researchers about what happens in our brain when you're constantly context-shifting and why that happens. I got really deep into the psychology of why we get really anxious about email, and that led me to to studying hunter-gatherer groups in Africa that they put sensors on to try to understand the role of of, uh, interaction, one-on-one interaction and, and its evolutionary fitness and why, therefore, an overflowing inbox why that stresses us out. I had to go deep on understanding the industrial revolution and and how that happened. And then pulling all these, I mean, it was, it was a challenge I haven't had before in a book, the amount of completely diverse fields that had to come together uh, to really understand this is how we got here. This is why it's bad. This is what we need to do. What I should have done, of course, is just say, uh, ask Brandon and David, because <laughs> <laughs> just, just ask them how they do it, right? We just get Brandon's EOS. We're, we're rock and roll. We're set. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, this is
0: why I love authors who like dive into topics like this and why I love all your books, because like you did hundreds of hours of research that I don't have to do now. I should be like, I, I just read Cal and
2: I got everything I needed. So <laughs> much easier, much, much easier. I tell people all the time that Cal is like my spirit animal. When I read so good, they can't ignore you. I just wanted to like, I was on an airplane. I want to get up and scream like, yes, this is what the world needs. Like there's this, this pain that so many people are in that they can't get what they want and they believe it's hopeless and they believe everything is set against them. And they, they come up with all these elaborate explanations for why they're not happy. And it's so simple. Like you're just not that good. And the good news is you haven't even tried yet to be good, okay? Like if you just gave the smallest effort at being better at what you did, you would find out it's really not that far away from where you're trying to go. And um, I, just to highlight like what Cal is talking about, how this applies to us as real estate investors, when I wrote Long Distance Real Estate Investing, many people said, this is crazy. You can't buy a house without seeing it. I heard this constantly. Is the number one objection is this is reckless. David is telling to buy people to buy a house they've never seen. And I would have to come back and say, what do you know about what you're looking at? Okay. Like when I pop open the hood of my car, when it breaks down and you know, like you get outside and you open it up, none of us know what we're actually trying to see there. No. Nobody does, right? We're not mechanics <laughs> unless something's like visibly smoking. I And I probably don't even know what that thing is. A mechanic is the one that has to look at it. When you're buying a house, the home inspector needs to review it and tell you, and you need to let them interpret what they're doing. You don't have to be there. And then with Burr, this whole idea that you got to, pay your down payment when you buy the house, that you can't buy it, fix it up, and then finance it. was like revolutionary thinking to so many people that it said, this is the way we do it. But to those of us that were in it, it was sort of common sense. We looked at it like, well, why are we doing that? That's dumb. You're going to put all the money down, then you're going to fix it up, and then you're going to rent it out, and you're going to leave 80,000 bucks in this house. Um, But Cal is like the front runner of challenging this ineffective way of thinking That's just follow the leader. Just get in front of the lemming in front of me and just go where they're going. Email comes in. I have to answer it. A person has a question. I have to reply. You know, meetings there. I have to show up on our team. We make sure before you come to a meeting, I know what the thing is that you have to get answers for that only I can answer. You cannot come and ask a question that you could have asked somebody else before you even came to the meeting. And to me, that was kind of common sense. Let's make this as efficient as we can, but everyone else just shows up and they wait for someone to tell them what to do. So for those that will embrace this, even if you think this doesn't apply to where you're at right now, just like start conditioning your mind to look at everything. Like, why do I have to do it that way? It will open up doors that can literally change your life in such amazing ways. It's why Brandon's in Hawaii and it's why I'm in Cabo and, well, Cal, you have like a white background behind you. You can't really see where you are, but I'm sure you get to go cool places when you want to go there. I used to be able to, but yeah,
5: yeah, <laughs> but, pre- but, you, but
1: you're absolutely right though. Yeah. But David, you're absolutely right. Right. I mean, go back to first principles. Like that's my, that's my whole thing is I go back to first principles. If there's a pain point, I go back to first principles. Why couldn't we do deep work? Uh, everyone had an answer. But everyone's answer is just, I don't know, here's a thing that's annoying me, or it fits some agenda I have, or it's just internally consistent. It was all so superficial, and it was all such a posturing at a high level. And I said, okay, maybe let's go back to first principles. When did email first get invented? What were the first companies to use it? What did it look like in 1990 versus today? Why did it change? Uh and doing that in almost every aspect of your life, I think is a good way of summarizing my work, I think is really important. Here's like a twist on that. This is a very Cal Newportian twist. If you want to do more of this type of original thinking to, to figure out from first principles, like how do I do this better, or that better? I honestly think excessive social media use, and of course I was going to bring it back here, uh, has some sort of negative influence there. Because when, when, you, when you check in on like social media interaction, it's a whole different ball ballgame that's more about like… What team am I on, and what's going to get approved of by what I say? And it's just a completely different way of thinking that I think is uh, counter to first principle thinking, which in business, for example, is going to be very important. So I think the fact that I don't use social media helps me think about things as diverse as you know career trajectory or uh, email or, or how to run a company because it gets you out of this mindset of what important what's important is like demonstrating the right allegiance or getting the right applause for what you pointed out. And I don't care about any of that. I'm not on any of those things. I just sit silently for five years with stacks of books and annoy researchers, you know? So, um, uh, uh, you know, of course I'm going to bring it back to like, maybe use less social media and your business somehow will be more successful. I don't know how that quite works, but uh, I always bring it back there somehow.
2: Especially Clubhouse.
1: Yeah, Yeah, everyone's on that.
2: Clubhouse is the perfect example of a waste of time because why am I doing it? Because everyone's doing it. Well, how does that help me? And then you just hear crickets. Yeah. All
0: right. So I was actually going to ask you, Cal, about if you're... Your lack of social media has changed. I remember that surprised me and a lot of people last time you were on the show is you didn't have social media and you're not a you know not a social media addict like the rest of us. And now you have a podcast though, and so I feel like part of me says, "Well, now he's got a podcast. He obviously needs social media to promote a podcast, right?" Like I mean, a part of your life, I feel like would dictate you have social media, but you still you still don't. Uh, and so, has that changed? Have you been tempted to do that because that might help your podcast, or is that just a limiting belief that you need to have? big social media to try to grow a podcast
1: look if i use social media probably in the short term i could get more podcast listeners i mean i don't quite know how that works Uh, i actually don't either i don't know if that actually helps (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know what i don't i don't know how it works i mean i don't know what a clubhouse is i don't know what a a tiktok (laughs) is i'm sure if i guess if i was if i was clubhousing a tiktok i mean maybe it would get me more podcast listeners but in the long run. I would stop doing the types of things that would make people want to listen to my podcast in the first place. So I don't know. I'm sure yeah. I'm leaving book sales on the table. I'm sure I'm leaving podcast subscribers because I'm not you know, doing those things, but I don't know that do I care. I mean, I don't know. I want to do interesting things. I want to have big ideas, write interesting ideas. I started the podcast during the pandemic because uh, I wasn't doing speaking and I sort of missed interacting with people about my my work and so the podcast was a way it's all interactive i i it's like a dave ramsey show right there's Mm, like callers that call in right And like here's my here's my problem and i'm overwhelmed by email or my life is you know uh, i feel like i have no meaning and and i i you know do my dave ramsey impression and give advice (laughs) uh i just wanted to talk to people and it's i don't it's better than i deserve better than i deserve right better than i deserve yeah doing fine better than i deserve um i yell at people about credit cards and uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. But anyways, uh, I don't know, right? I, I prefer, I call it the deep life. Like, what are the big things that matter? Let me double down on those, try to get rid of the distractions. Um, have you seen anyone during this pandemic, by the way, who, who has said, you know, come out of however many months and be like, I'll tell you the one thing I did love during this pandemic was my social, being on social media, <laughs> definitely being on Twitter and finding out the ways in which, uh, you know, like yeah. the virus was sneaking in on my food and, uh, and is going to infect me. All bad news, all bad news, all bad news right? Yeah. Um, no one's happy about being on Twitter. No one's happy about spending a lot of time on YouTube during the pandemic. So like, I don't know, it's probably yeah. helped me in that now way. My,
0: I can, I can draw a complete correlation to my happiness level in a given week and the number of hours I spend on my phone or social media. I mean, it is a direct correlation and I know that, and I still struggle with it. Uh, And then there's always new social media apps being brought all the time. The big one like you mentioned with Clubhouse. Clubhouse is basically a, you just get on there and you talk with people like you're on a stage. think of a panel at a conference. If you're at a conference, there's a panelist, there's five panelists on stage and there's a hundred people listening. That's Clubhouse just also digital, right? Just talk. Uh, And everyone that's like the big thing right now is Clubhouse. And like, yeah, David and I both have have talked about like, were they like, I have a profile there. I don't think David does. I'm not sure it benefits me, which goes back to like deep work uh, and digital minimalism is this idea of like, instead of just saying, hey, that's a new technology, let's adopt it. It's asking the question, does this actually get me closer to the things that I want? Like you said, you want to, you want to think these big thoughts and you want to write books and you influence people. Does Clubhouse get you there? Probably not. Is Clubhouse going to get David to get more clients as a real estate agent? Probably
2: not. So we've kind of avoided that. David, anything you want to add on that? Because I know you're the, you're the anti-Clubhouse guy lately. Just to think of it that way, that not one person who's told me I should be on Clubhouse could actually give me an objective reason how it helped me with any of my goals. But yet every one of them felt compelled to say, you have to do this. And when I said why, it was because everybody's doing it. (laughs) That was the only reason. And that is the exact kind of thinking that leads to you answering every single email in your inbox. Well, why are you answering that? Well, because it's there. It's just remove yourself a little bit from that perspective and, and you'll start to see the things that really matter in accomplishing your goals.
1: Yeah. I always say like, don't, don't worry so much about missing out on things you don't know about. Worry instead about not spending time on the things that you already know for sure are very valuable. Like that's where the big win is. There's a small number of things in each area of your life that you know for sure are big wins and important. Doubling the time you spend on those is mathematically going to give you a much bigger benefit in your life than taking that same limited time and spreading it over all of these other little unknown things, each of which generates much less value.
0: That's a really, really good way of looking at that. I really like that a lot, Cal. Well, it's a good way to kind of uh, begin wrapping things up here. Now we are going to go to the last segment of the show here. It is called our... Famous Four. All right, the famous four. These are the same four questions we ask every guest every week. And I know we threw them at you last time, Cal, but the first question has changed since last time you're on the show. So the question is what is a habit or trait that you're currently trying to develop or improve in your life? Is there anything you're focused on right now trying to improve? A habit or trait uh, that
1: I, I mean, yeah, so I, I, I metric track all the time. I'm a big metric tracking guy. So I'm always. Always I have a collection of metrics that I'm always evolving. And every single day I, I write down these metrics. I could, I could probably grab my planner right now. So that's always evolving. So I'm going to think, what have I added? Well, so I added for sure during the pandemic, a metric about news consumption mm. that drastically, drastically reduced it. And I was going to check that off yes or no every day. Did I look at news only during the set time in the set way? Or did I do doom scroll style checks throughout the day, right? And it was either yes or no. And I didn't want to put no. And it saved me. I had such a compulsion, especially when there was uh, like kind of bad news going on. But you're like, maybe I'll see something out there that's that's saying it's not as bad as you think. And that'll make me feel better. And it was a huge way. So like a metric just for that. And it was either yes or no. And not wanting to put down no was like actually really actually really helped me reshape that during the pandemic. I also decided I need to be outside for close to 10 to 15,000 steps a day, uh, outside every single day. And I tracked that down to the step made a huge difference. Right. Uh, and just being out there, getting the sunlight moving, uh, that was new. I hadn't, I hadn't prioritized that as much before. Um, so I think that was a big one, but more generally I track all this stuff and I'm
0: constantly changing what I track. Yeah. That's really good, man. I love that. I track everything as well. And very similar way. I'm tracking all this stuff. So made a big impact on me. Cool.
2: side note for you, Cal. Do you still write your books in your head while you're outside doing those walks? Yes, I do a
1: I do a lot of work, a lot of article writing, book writing, and math proof solving uh, in my head on foot. I'm still seen as the crazy professor at Tacoma Park because <laughs> uh, I just I'm walking without a dog. And um <laughs> I'm going by honestly, just a quick aside, by the way, I was a little bit worried. I've been worried recently because my route, goes past um, a, a well-known congressman's house and he has... Uh police protection right now. So there's always Capitol policemen parked outside of, of his house because he was helping to run the, uh, like the impeachment or something like this. I literally got worried, like Your case I'm always walking <laughs> walking by here because it's a nice road. I'm like, they're going to arrest me at some point. This is, this is going to be, this is going to be it. Is Is they're going to be like, all right, for sure you're up to something, no good. So I'd literally be worried That's about nice that. Especially if you're muttering to
2: yourself. Yeah. That's <laughs> good. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of the EOS books. Do you have a favorite business book you can share?
1: Okay. So it's a good question. I have a hard time. I have a hard time just with favorites are hard for me because I, I there's so many different categories, but when it comes to EOS type stuff, uh, I really liked work, the system, the sort of underground self-published book, Sam Carpenter is the writer. And uh, I think it's, it's just right to it. Like here's how you systematize things and why you need to systematize things. And so like in that particular space, I liked it uh, in time management. It's a tie between Covey and Alan, right? Um, I mean, Alan's notion of the psychological impact of tasks, game changer. So getting things done is a, is a crucial book. Covey, however, had this crucial idea of uh, productivity fits within a larger scheme of building a deeper life. And he had his quadrants. And, and so like in the productivity space, um, those two books, those two books are really close to me. I don't know. In the entrepreneur, when I was a little kid, I read this old biography of Bill Gates. Uh, the author's name was Maines, M-A-N-E-S. And that completely threw me down a trajectory. I started a business. I, I went into I went into computer science, and so I can give category favorites. So, so
2: those are a few. That's great. That's very helpful. Actually, I like the way you answer that question. Now people have some stuff they can go pursue. Uh, what about some hobbies?
1: You know, I, I have too many kids, so I don't, have, I don't have. I have three kids. I don't have a. I don't have a ton of time that I'm not doing family stuff. Even though my work, I'm mainly constrained to nine to five. I'm just wrangling kids all the time. And I would say, you know, most of the time I spend when I'm not wrangling kids or working or just trying to keep reasonably in shape is I read all the time. And so, so reading is probably my, my main hobby. If I had to tag it, I look forward to, by the way, having more time for hobbies If I can just get these kids a little bit older. uh, I think there'll be a new golden age. So I'm looking forward to learning how to, I don't know, build a
0: canoe or something. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm in the. I'm in the same phase right now. I got like the four-year-old and a one-year-old. And um, I like look at people like David, I'm like, you have so much time in your life. It's amazing. Like, like I was, I remember what it was like back then. It was glorious. Someday it'll return to us, Cal. Uh, one day. All right. Last question for me. What do you think separates successful, if you had to like really boil it down, what separates successful entrepreneurs from those who give up, fail, or never get started? I think first principles matter. Right. So, whether you like the answer or not,
1: figuring out this is what moves the needle here, this is what's required here, knowing what moves the needle and being able to then get more of your energy on the things that actually matter, that what seems to distinguish success from not success. Right. Also, it helps you move, navigate properly. You're like, okay, okay, this is what would actually be required if I, you know, I, mean, I don't know real estate well, but I could imagine, let's say you're getting on the first principles. Uh, you know, you're, you're reading David and Brandon's books. Like you're, you're getting down to, you're figuring out how this stuff really works. And you're like, okay, I want to, I want to make money in real estate. And once you really understand how it works and what's required, you might be like, oh, I could, I could, I could do uh multifamily properties and I could manage this Meaning I can do it long distance. I didn't realize that. So let me put my energy there. But this idea I had of, you know, I want skyscrapers or something, right? You're like, oh, I see. That's going to require a uh, hundred million dollars in capital. And that to get there, you have to go this route and, and, um, okay, that's not, I'm not well-suited for that, or that's not really open to me. So it, it also helps you navigate away from the shoals you can't pass and towards the things you can. So I, I think that is key, is getting down to not what you want to matter, not the things that feel like it's kind of hard but not too hard, not the, not the, gl- the glamour stuff like, yeah, I want to I you know, do this because it'll be fun or write my 100 words a day and then I'll be an author type stuff. But get down to like what would really be required, what works, what energy does it take, uh, what's that path look like? And just get the real story. Yeah. And then once you have the real story, now you can do everything.
0: Phenomenal answer. I really, really, really like that. Well, with that said, got to get out of here. David Green, you want to close up shop? Oh, wait, you got, yeah, close up shop with the last question. That's
2: exactly what I meant. Where, well, <laughs> yeah, where can people find out more about you?
0: Well, I'll be on Clubhouse
1: for the next six hours, <laughs> so uh, just uh, you, can, you can you can get the address on my TikTok account. I'll, I, I'll dance. <laughs> All right, so 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 calnewport I that's where my weekly newsletter is. I've been writing for I don't know a long time since two thousand seven. My podcast is Deep Questions, and that's about it. All right,
0: it's fantastic, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been phenomenal. As always, I love learning from you. I love reading your stuff. And uh, I just tell everyone about all your books all the time. So keep it up, keep writing. And uh, everyone go check out uh, Cal's newest book. It's World Without Emails. Am I, am I saying that correct? A World Without Email. Yep.
2: All right. Well, thank you, David. You want to get us out of here? Thank you, Cal. You're out here doing God's work. We appreciate it.
0: <laughs> all right. Thank you.
2: Thank you. This is David Green for Brandon All Kids and No Time Turner. Signing off.
4: Braving the real estate investing journey on your own can be daunting. Doubts tend to creep up and stifle your ambition. Is this actually a good deal? Did you run the numbers right? What if you can't find a tenant? Can you even afford this place? What if you lose your job? Whatever you're going through, we've all been there. And guess what? The best way to overcome your doubts and hesitations is with a healthy dose of knowledge, networking, and accountability. And that's just what you'll find in our newly released 2024 Summer Boot Camps. After these eight action-packed weeks of step-by-step guidance from expert investors, weekly video modules, live Q&As, interactive assignments, and new friends to keep you accountable, you'll be ready to tackle your first or next deal with full confidence and expertise. Choose from the small multifamily, short-term rental, or rookie boot camps and register by April 12th for the lowest prices. Head on over to biggerpockets.com slash enrollme today. That's biggerpockets.com
2: slash enrollme.